This is Tanzina Vega, and we're talking about identity all this week on The Takeaway. On Tuesday, we looked at the working class. Today, we turn to the elite, the 1% who literally have so much money that, as our next guest says, they're now after what's being called a four-pack of houses, i.e. homes in New York City, the Hamptons, Miami, and Aspen. The media, politicians, pundits, they love to hate the elite. But who makes up this group, and why all the hate? Anand Girdadas is the author of the forthcoming book, Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. Since 1979, half of Americans, the bottom half, 117 million people, have gone from an average income of $16,000 to $16,200. So that's, that's not much of a raise, is it? That's about 39 years. We've invented the internet in that period. We've had globalization happen in an extraordinary way in that period. Any number of things have happened that are amazing. And here's what was happening to uh, incomes at the top. If you were in the top 1%, your income today is triple uh, what a 1% earned in 1979. And if you're in the 0.01%, uh, you actually earn seven times more than what someone in the 0.01% earned uh, in 1979. And what that tells you is, the resources that are not going to the bottom half of Americans are going somewhere else. They are going to other people. They are buying those four packs of houses uh, as many Americans struggle to make a living. And, of course, we know this in all these anecdotal ways. We know that workers at Walmart are also on food stamps. We know that hunger is just alarmingly high in New York City given what New York City looks like and the fact that it's the greatest concentration of wealth and power in the history of human civilization. But if I'm sitting in one of my four-pack houses and I make, you know, I have a net worth of $8 million, I mean, what does it really matter? Why do I really care about that Walmart worker? You probably don't. And I'm here to try to make people understand that they are not living in the paradise they think they are. Um, the paradise they're living in has a basement and the basement contains multitudes of people who are locked there so that you can be above it. So help me understand how a president, as we, we have our current president, uh, is part of this elite. How was this president able to run on a populist message, if you will, whether it was accurate or not accurate, and rally this sort of white working class you know, base, um, or at least that was the perception of who he was able to rally, when, as you said, Half of the country hasn't had a raise in quite some time. One of the most interesting things about Donald Trump is that he is at once an exploiter, an exposer, and an embodiment of what I talk about as this kind of elite charade of changing the world. I think a lot of what's gone on that I've tried to tackle is rich people who are part of this predatory elite that has ex essentially extracted potential from the bottom half of this country, who then rebrand themselves as saviors, philanthropists, changers of the world. And part of how they do that is by convincing people, there's certain moves they make. They convince people that, you know, my interests are the same as yours. They convince people that they're somehow their wealth uh, makes them not corrupt, but actually especially capable of fighting for the underdogs, incorruptible. Um, they make a move of uh, trying to suggest that that they and only they can kind of tell the truth. And Donald Trump, kind of in this mad genius way, both called the fraud on elites who claim to be fighting for others. He played that game of these elites don't care about you, they're shipping jobs overseas. 
They're doing immigration policy to benefit companies, not you. And then, of course, he was the embodiment of the elite con of pretending to care for underdogs. Um, He, to me, is the reductio ad absurdum of a culture that trusts billionaires to save us. And I don't think we can understand him. I think we we tend to understand him as a one-off. To me, he's the product of deep tendencies in our culture, deep tendencies with regard to race and whiteness, but also deep tendencies with regard to our trust, um, almost our hope in being saved by the super-rich. And speaking of that hope, how disconnected are the super-rich from their actual communities? I mean, I think this is a point that you make in your work, that people are no longer connected, say, uh, I become a gazillionaire and I grew up in lower Manhattan and I want to give back to my local uh, Boys and Girls Club, for example. You're suggesting that that disconnectedness is happening more and more from place, right, where these elites live and or work, perhaps? I mean, I will tell you, it's, a, it's a, such a fascinating thing. I know so many people in America who are doing something to help Kenya. And I know nobody who's doing anything to help Kentucky. And I think there's a reason for that. I just use those places as, as metaphors. I think we used to have this idea that we were all particularly elites. We're kind of leaders of a community. We're part of a community. And so if you did well in that community, if you think back to your parents or grandparents' generation, but those people who kind of pulled up fortune from the ground, often reinvested it in the ground. We now live in a kind of here, there, everywhere world where the idea of place has almost vanished. Um, I'm sitting here with a coffee cup in front of me. For all I know, that coffee cup was made by a company in Atlanta, but designed by someone in South Korea, and then made by someone in China, and then shipped but coordinated the logistics by a Finnish company. Um, But actually, the company in Atlanta is owned by Dutch private equity investors, which actually invests a Brazilian pension fund. This Uh, is the most interesting cup of coffee in the world. And everything (laughs) on our bodies, everything around us, is now made this way. Nothing belongs anywhere. And there's a lot of good that's come out of that. But I think part of it is no one feels responsibility for any place. Also, you know, bringing it back to the United States, I mean, lots of wealth is generational. You know, when we talk about wealth in this country, when we talk about this myth of the meritocracy, we don't talk about things like the Homestead Act, which gave land, essentially gave land away for free, right? And so the wealth that's accumulated through that, the wealth that's accumulated through passing down uh, homes and home ownership and land and redlining, and there's so many other reasons why... Uh, You know, the wealth gap data says it'll take more than 200 years to close the gap between blacks and whites in America. So that tension, that stress, you mentioned this earlier when you said there are people in the basement. Are the people in the basement, if you will, planning on coming out of the basement? Are you seeing some sort of class resentment or, or more class revolt, if you will? I think we are. And those revolts don't always necessarily take the forms that everyone's going to like. So I think it's Hard to look at the election of Trump without saying that even from my – though my point of view, it's one of the most disastrous things that's ever happened to this country. It also reflects somewhere buried in there a correct intuition laced with a lot of other horrible sentiments that elites in this country don't really give a crap about average people. 
Um, I think that intuition is in there somewhere for many people, and I think it's right. Um, I also don't think we, because of what happened in the election, remember how remarkable it was that Bernie Sanders, not only because he was a socialist, but also because he was like everybody's worst grandpa, uh, came as far as he did um, to defeating the most powerful, formidable political family in America. You know, I think we are living in a time in which, you know, young people are absolutely exploring the question of, is capitalism even something they believe in? Um, I think we're living in a time in which people are dropping out of, uh, sometimes voluntarily and sometimes not, of kind of conventional work lives, um, in part because it's hard to get into nine to five jobs these days and have companies kind of bear the risk of making you an employee, but also because a lot of people don't believe that there's any pot of gold at the end of those those rainbows. Lots to unpack there, and I'd love to continue this conversation. I feel like we could talk about this for hours. Uh, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, and congrats again on, on a great debut. Thanks. On Notes from America, we have conversations with people across the country about how we can truly become the nation that we claim to be. Each week, we talk about race, our politics, education, relationships, usually all of them, because everything's connected. And you, our listeners, are at the center of those conversations. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on Notes from America, wherever you get your podcasts.